0: Buenos dias. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is a royal member of the World Data Visualization Court who's here to make an honest chart out of your viz. Stay tuned to find out who's taking us to school on the Present Beyond Measure show, episode 49. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello, and happy October, dear listener. Welcome to the 49th episode of the Present Beyond Measure Show, only one away from the Big 5 0. Can't believe it. This is the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights. And today you are here either because you love to hear me riff in the beginning or you are ready to hear an absolute firehose of incredible wisdom given by one of this industry's most respected minds in the data visualization field. Fall is settling in and it's getting, oh, it's getting cold. Dang it. I'm really a summer person. But The changing of seasons is always a fantastic way to reflect on what we're ready to let go of and what we're ready to let in, such as new data storytelling skills. So... If you're in the Boston area in a few weeks, you should come meet me at Digital Summit. I'll be delivering my signature Pika protocol keynote, your prescription for healthy, actionable digital data stories. The link to registration is on the show notes page for this episode at leahpica.com slash 049. And that is October 21st to the 22nd. And if you are really, really ready to clean out your skills closet and make room for new, ready to take your data presentation game to an 11, you have to check out my data presentation and storytelling bootcamp course bundle. It is a series of comprehensive, immersive online courses that are on demand. And this is the blueprint that I wish existed when I started out presenting data as a digital marketer 15 years ago. Now I've divvied up my flagship private workshop into three chunkable courses packed with over 40 video modules, tons of resources, printable checklists, articles, every little bit that I could find in my kitchen to throw in the sink. It's comprehensive, it's practical with neuroscience and cinematic storytelling principles all woven together with a really practical approach you can use again and again. So you can buy these courses separately, but however, I am offering a very special fall bundle price for all of these courses because I believe that the whole outweighs the sum of these parts. So if you want to keep your audience engaged and off their phones and inspire action on your insights, visit Leapika.com slash bootcamp and sign up. So as always, I am pumped to bring on today's guest, but I have to say This interview really stands out. This was an exhilarating conversation with one of the most revered minds in the field of data viz, and it sought to answer an age-old question that permeates our daily data-driven life. The question of, is this chart right or wrong? But to answer, as you'll see in the next few minutes, we turn that question on its head, not by asking whether it's right or wrong, but rather how wrong is it? Hmm. So we covered a lot of ground in this interview. So get cozy, settle in with a pumpkin spice latte, and get ready to put the fall in faulty data viz. It's a stretch. I know. <laughs> Hello, today's guest is a celebrated visualization educator, designer and consultant. He is the night Chair in Visual Journalism at the University of Miami and the Director of Visualization at UM Center for Computational Science. He is the author of of a data viz bible called the truthful art data charts and maps for communication and he's here to talk more about his brand new book coming out in just a few days called how charts lie this is a very exciting book in this field he began his career in infographics and data viz in 1997 and became a professor of university of miami in 2012. And he's also a consultant for companies such as Google. I can't wait to introduce Mr. Alberto Cairo. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was a very long introduction. Oh, well. I, I appreciate it. Well
0: deserved. <laughs> <laughs> so I am. I've just wanted to have you on the show for years now, and I'm so excited that I'm able to have you on to talk about your book topic, which has been a real new passion uh, niche in the field of data viz, which is the ethics of data visualization and the truth of it. So you know, after I read a book called Good Charts by Scott Baranato, um, he, he really started to unpack a lot of the dogma around what's right and what's wrong and how we are responsible for trying to communicate as ethically as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm so excited for you to talk more about your book, How Charts Lie. And for mm-hmm. me, in going through it, I felt like the heart of your book seemed to lie within this quote, which was a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. So can you start by speaking to what does that mean as you know the essence of what you're trying to teach?
1: Wow, yeah, that that's at the core of the book. So you basically w- got to one of my favorite sentences yes. in the book. Um
0: <laughs> did
1: it. Um, all right, so um I will try to be as concise as possible. So the the, the the basic argument of the book is that um for for decades, um many people have approached visualization as if um charts and graphs and maps were pictures or illustrations that can be understood um, intuitively, quickly, easily. You know, we all have heard, you know, the old dogma or the old myth. A picture is worth a thousand words. The visualization should be as simple as possible. (laughs) Um, Data should speak for itself, which is also very common. And the book basically tries to debunk all those myths and (laughs) tries to propose the idea that a visualization is basically an argument made visual based on data. So if you want to understand the chart, you cannot assume that you can understand the chart just by taking a quick look at it. Mm. You really need to pay attention to it and you really need to ask yourself, <clears throat> what is this chart showing and mm. what is this chart not showing? And moreover, what am I seeing in this chart that is not really in the chart? Right. That I am imagining. Am I projecting Mm. my own beliefs? Am I projecting my own expectations or beliefs onto the chart that I'm seeing? And that is what I try to convey in that sentence, that a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. I could point out several examples, right? The classic. There's a couple of examples in the book that discuss covariation versus causation or correlation Mm -hmm. versus causation. That's a perfect example of that. But it really applies to any to any chart. It really applies to any kind of graphic that that is intended to depict or to convey data.
0: This is this is so interesting. It's about filling the gaps of what you're not seeing and For me, what your book, it made me get a little philosophical, if I may, you know, for me, this has been a year of exploring what the word truths versus lie actually mean. And people are saying, well, this is, these are the facts and this is the truth. And Mm -hmm. a good friend of mine uh, once said to me, no one has a monopoly on the truth and that it's impossible to observe and relay the truth as a human filter, because there's no lens that doesn't create a bias. So for me, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, is it being more responsible to come out and say, like, when we humans display data to each other, we are lying as little as possible or we've yeah. attempted to be as least uncertain yeah. as possible? Correct.
1: That, that's, that's absolutely correct. And that is what I try. I, I address... The notion of truth and truthfulness a little bit more seriously mm-hmm. in the previous book, The Truthful Art, because The Truthful Art is more for for people who already work in data visualization or in journalism, etc. So I discussed this a little bit more in depth, although it also permeates How Charts Lie, which is basically a book about a book for the general public. The title, mm. by the way, of How Charts Lie could have been How Not to lie with charts. Right. Or how to make charts that don't <laughs> lie, right? Because they're That's not lying. Exactly. They are not <laughs> lying, right? They are not deceiving. Right. So that how charts just lie about how charts mislead, how they, they may deceive, etc. In the truthful art, though, I describe what I like to call a spectrum of truthfulness. So okay. whenever n- no, no chart, no data visualization, no statement that we make can be absolutely true. Right. right? Right. What we can do is to try to move, imagine a spectrum for, with two, uh, two endpoints being absolute truth and an absolute untruth, right, on one end and to the other end. What we can do is to try to attempt to move towards the truthful, to the, to, towards the truth end of the, of the spectrum, mm-hmm. but, being, uh, but trying to be as honest as possible, but right. trying to be as rigorous as possible, but trying to apply good analytical methods by applying good design principles and good visualization design principles, that will not guarantee 100% that, the, that your chart will correspond exactly to the truth of the matter, right. but it will be more likely than not that you will be closer to that end of the spectrum. So in the book, I explained that my my notion of truth is with a with a lowercase t, not with, a, with <laughs> an uppercase t. Right?
0: I like that. Mm. A lowercase t. Yes, because it's, I think that... You know, as a culture, we have grown into this sort of good versus bad and right Mm -hmm. versus wrong. It's
1: binary thinking. Exactly.
0: Oh, I love that. Yes, Mm -hmm. binary thinking rather than seeing a vast spectrum Mm -hmm. of colors and gray shades, you know, in between and saying, you know, like and also the confidence that we come with this. I think that we're also, you know, in our field you know, my listeners are presenting data and findings to people in a corporate setting and or or people at a conference setting. And there's an expectation, I think, sometimes from the audience to say, I want the facts, I want the truth. Mm -hmm. And we are attempting to uphold that and and deliver a confidence that says, this is definitely what happened, rather than (laughs) feeling into the idea that there is a degree of uncertainty and for me the res- the ethics is communicating that degree of uncertainty making sure I completely, that that's- yeah,
1: completely agree completely agree that that also happens in the world where i come from the world of journalism the world of graphic mm. design this kind of binary thinking is also very <laughs> it's also very visible things are either true or they are not true right. right and you know i think that this is part of like the long um i would say educational effort that we all need to make uh, Mm -hmm. with ourselves and also with other people to basically make people understand that no data is um, 100% certain. There is always a cloud of uncertainty around it. Not only that, but show me the facts or give me the facts should imply always that what we really mean is give me your best interpretation of those (laughs) facts, right? Your your most confident interpretation of those facts. And if your most confident interpretation of those facts uh, is not 100 percent certain and it never is. The ethical thing to do is to say, well, I feel very confident that this is the explanation. But here is another possible another possible alternative explanation that I am less confident about, but that we should explore further. Right. That's the ethical thing to do.
0: I love that. I love the idea of offering another potential possibility. This is something that I'm teaching in conscious communication is saying, I don't have the concrete answer. There's always another potential story or meaning or possibility here. And I think the really cognizant analyst or uh, data presenter is going to be forthcoming with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it is only we should we should add a qualifier, though, uh, saying that it is still appropriate to say I am very confident yes. about this explanation. So it's like it's not absolutely relativism that I'm advocating for. Not all explanations are equally good. And this is something that I also address in the truthful art. Some explanations are better than others, depending on how well supported they are by the fact, Mm -hmm. by your interpretation, by how rigorous your methods are, and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. You can safely say that one interpretation is is more confident than the other. But if you are not, you know, you are a little bit on the fence, you know, 60% confidence, 70% confidence, I I think that it is safer to also disclose the other 20%, right, yes. the other of, of possible interpretations, right? But it is true, though, that people who are used to presenting data in business environments, sometimes they are requested by management to give them just one answer, right? <laughs> right. And, And and I I am a great believer in pushing back against that a little Mm. bit. And again, this is an educational effort. And again, I'm basing this on my own experience as a journalist, where in newsrooms, we also get that kind of request. Give me the explanation. And I said, well, I cannot give you the explanation. I can give you the explanation I am more confident about in Mm -hmm. this analysis of this story. But we do need to disclose this possible alternative explanation that also has some, you know, some facts uh, to back it up.
0: Right. One hundred percent. It's kind of pushing back and saying the only observable fact is there is a glass in front of me that contains water. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But we always take the extra step and say that the truth is that the glass is half full or the glass is half empty.
1: Correct. Mm-hmm.
0: And finding that distinction, I think, is key. And helping stakeholders who are consuming data recognize those distinctions, because we are so quick to overlay our interpretation. So I love what you're saying. It's it's almost like, I'm going to give you my best interpretation using mm-hmm. my expertise.
1: <laughs> yeah, my, my best interpretation, but I acknowledge that I'm a human being and, yes. you know, I, I'm, I'm you know, I have I, I may fail, I may be incorrect and these are the ways right. that I may be incorrect. Yeah.
0: We're, we're not Siri or Alexa and we might have missed our coffee this morning. <laughs> <so>.
1: <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yes.
0: So you opened the book referencing a somewhat infamous election map that is hanging in the halls of the White House. <laughs> I love.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to interrupt you. Sorry yeah, about that. No, but yeah. yeah it, at least it hanged on the walls of the White House uh, after President Trump took office. I don't know right. if it is still, still on the there. The exactly. Right Thank yeah. you.
0: <laughs> yes. Interrupt me anytime to correct my <laughs> interpretations. Sorry, yeah. No, mm-hmm. of course. And you speak to how maps, in particular, are among the most misused chart type. What do you think is going wrong with uh, map charts?
1: Well, I mean, based on that particular example, just to describe it with a little bit more of detail. Sure. Um, I, I, I refer to the county level. A map of the results of the 2016 election. If you take a look at that map, it looks like an ocean of red mm-hmm. with a few spots of blue here and there, right? Right. And it is being used right now to argue that basically uh, President Trump and the Republican Party won the 2016 presidential election in a landslide, because indirectly, that's what that map suggests, right? It's tons of red, 80 percent of red, actually. That's the surface that is covered in red. Um, on that map versus 20% of blue. But obviously that map was not designed to, the purpose of that map is not to give you an idea of how many people voted for each one of the candidates. It's a map of territory and territory doesn't vote. Um, the challenge is that obviously that you need to take population density into account, and you know the fact that most of the map is red is due to the fact that Republican vote tends to concentrate mostly in rural and sparsely populated areas, and Democratic vote tends to concentrate in big cities. That's the reason mm-hmm. why we have just a, a few blue splotches here and there, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Trump won the election, obviously, but he won <laughs> losing losing the uh, the popular vote. Right. So if the purpose of your or argumentation or conversation that you're having is to talk about who won and by how much and by how many votes and such and such. That map doesn't really support that kind of conversation because that Matt. map was designed with a completely different purpose, to show who won where, mm-hmm. not to show how many votes. Um, each one of the candidates got. And maps can be misinterpreted in many different ways. This is just one of them. Not taking into account possible denominators, for example, right, that may change the interpretation of the map completely. And this is why the whole whole reason why I say in the book, pay attention and be careful. Right. Don't don't infer from the map. Be vigilant, right? It's like don't infer from the map what you want to see in the map, because then what you are doing is on the map, projecting your own beliefs onto the map, and therefore you will misinterpret it. And this happens to everybody, by the way. It doesn't happen only only on the right hand, hand side of the political spectrum. It happens to me. It happens to everybody that we need to become a little bit more attentive, a little bit more mindful and a little bit more careful and not assuming that we can interpret a chart or a graph or a map intuitively in the blink of an eye.
0: That is an excellent point. And I think that you're speaking to something that I don't know that a lot of people are aware of that's happening all the time, which is a a form of uh, cognitive bias, which is called confirmation bias, where Mm -hmm. your own pre-established beliefs and preferences are allowing you to very quickly extract what it is you're seeking to find from a visualization. So. One political camp is going to love that chart because at first glance, it communicates something that they want to hear or see versus what other, you know, you had provided some other um, maps. And uh, I'm always forgetting the name of this chart type, but it's uh, where you're showing a spatial representation of the United States, but you're showing each area in these hexagonal Shapes, oh, mm-hmm. a
1: cartogram. Cartogram, a cartogram. thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. which
0: is often talked about as a more accurate way of looking at map level data, because just the inherent size and shape of countries and states are—they're using our you know pre-cognitive attributes of you know color taking up a certain amount of space and and jumping out at us. They're they're like speaking two different languages almost in a way, mm-hmm. making our interpretation of regular maps kind of inherently <laughs> flawed. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I in the book I, I I talk a little bit about cartograms, um, and I make the point that a cartogram alone can also be a little bit misleading just it, because it is difficult to connect the weird shape of the cartogram to the real shape right. of the um, of the United States or any other country. Therefore, it is always better to pair them up with an actual map so people can compare the actual map to the cartogram is when we pair these two maps together, we put them together that our, under, our understanding of that phenomenon in, in concrete, the, uh, the results of the election may improve a little bit, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I love actually what you said in the beginning about this book that this is a great book for the general public to take on because, you know, I actually put out a question on Twitter this morning asking your fans, what could they ask you about ethical uh, data visualization and a number of the questions centered around the education of the consumer You know, like how you have to be trained to some degree to properly consume this information. So your book for me really took this to the next level and looking how the data looking at the data we're seeing in our daily lives, especially through the lens of the media, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is an interesting filter for us to receive our information. Right. So, you know, I would love to talk a little bit about a recent event that was, Mm -hmm. you know, quite a wildfire on social media, otherwise affectionately known as Sharpie Gate and (laughs) the cone of uncertainty surrounding Hurricane Dorian. So, you know, I would love for you to give us a little perspective on what do you think just happened there?
1: Sure, absolutely. all right. So, well, first of all, referring to the first point that you made in your in your question, uh, absolutely. I mean, how charts lie. The title itself is a little bit deceptive because it's not a book about how charts lie. It's about how not to be lied at or lied to by the charts that we mm. see every day in the media. Because even if a, if a chart is perfectly designed, again, take take you know, just remember the county level results. Yes. Uh, That map is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's supposed to work as it is supposed to work. It's only that we project on it or onto it what we want to believe already, and Mm -hmm. therefore we misinterpret it. So as you said, in any act of communication, there is an emitter, there is a designer in this case who creates a visualization, but there is also a receiver, a reader or a viewer. And it happens sometimes, and this is something that I describe more in, I I mention it in the book, but I describe it in much more detail um, in, in recent talks. Um, When we create a visualization, we have a particular mental model or a particular schema of how that visualization should work or what we want to communicate with that visualization. And we create a visualization based on that mental schema. And then we put it out and then a reader or a viewer takes a look at the graphic and the viewer comes to the graphic with their own mental schema, Mm -hmm. which may be different. Than the mental schema of the designers. When there is a match between the mental schema or the mental model or the mental map that the designer had and the mental model that the reader has in mind, then understanding happens. But sometimes okay. there is a mismatch, right? <laughs> yes. Because perhaps the reader doesn't have doesn't know how to read that particular kind of chart, mm-hmm. or because the reader has a different kind of education and so on and so forth. And that is when misunderstandings happen. And now we get to Sharpiegate. So what happened in Sharpie Gate? Just to summarize. So, and I, I mean, I, I know a lot about this story because I experienced it p- p- firsthand. I live in Miami, right. Florida. We prepare for Dorian mm-hmm. and we pay a lot of attention to maps by the National Hurricane Center. Anyway, so initially Hurricane Dorian was predicted, was forecasted around August the 30th, the 29th, the 30th, the 31st to make landfall in Florida. The entirety of Florida was covered by the cone of uncertainty. And mm-hmm. Let me make an aside here. The con- it's something that I also talk about in How Chats Like. Many people interpret the cone of uncertainty as an area under danger. And that is not what the cone right. of uncertainty is showing. The cone of uncertainty is basically it's a, it's an abstract representation of multiple possible positions of the center of the storm mm-hmm. um, in the following five days. So it, it's, a, it's a representation, not of threat. It is a representation of uncertainty of the forecast. Mm. Right? Basically, scientists are telling you the center of the hurricane could go anywhere, could be anywhere within this cone right. and even outside of it in some cases, right? Because it's not a 100 percent confidence. Right. It's only a 67 percent confidence. Anyway, those are the gory details that I go over, uh, that I describe in a lot of uh, a lot of detail uh, in, in, in the book. Anyway, anyway so... August the 31st, the cone, the forecast for Dorian was predicted, predicting that Dorian will make landfall in in Florida. And previous forecasts, all right, forecasts from August the 30th or something like that, had the cone, the outer boundary of the cone, touching the southeastern part of Alabama. Barely, mm-hmm. barely touching the southern tip of Alabama. Anyway, so on September the 1st, uh, one day after all these forecasts, President Trump woke up and sent a tweet saying <laughs> the following states are going to be hit harder than expected or harder than forecasted mm-hmm. by Doria. And those states were Florida, South Carolina, Georgia and Alabama. And I was completely surprised because why Alabama? Because right. if you took a look at the forecast for September the 1st, that very same morning, the National Hurricane Center had issued an updated forecast, and that forecast pushed the possible path of Dorian towards the east, right? Right. It was predicted to go over the ocean. We will still, down here in Florida, we will still we were still predicted to uh, receive some of the effects of Dorian, but it was not predicted to make a direct landfall in, in Florida. And certainly, it was not predicted to go over Alabama at all, right? right? On September the 1st. So President Obama got called out by, oh, sorry, President Trump got called out by <laughs> by many people, and including the Birmingham, Alabama uh, National Hurricane Center office, they sent a tweet saying Alabama is not going to be affected by the storm just because many people started calling them, phoning sure. them, by, by the by President Trump's tweet, right? So these people were responding and they tweeted out. Uh, just to calm people down, uh, Dorian is not going to come to Alabama. Don't worry, we are not going to have any effects of Dorian. But uh, so if the story had ended up ended here, it would be a non-story, right? President Trump could have just issued a correction. It, this can happen to anybody, right? Anybody can misread those maps, uh, forecast maps. They are very easy to misread. They are complex to read, right? They, they need to be explained in order to be understood correctly. Mm-hmm. He could have just, you know, issued a correction saying, "Hey." You know, I wrote Alabama, I was wrong, I apologize to Alabamians, right? These are the states that are going to be impacted by the storm. Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and perhaps North Carolina, because at that right. point, the storm was predicted to go over the outer banks in North Carolina. But he didn't correct that, which I think that is, it would be it would have been the right thing to do. And the story would have ended there. I made a mistake, I'm sorry, I apologize, and then you move on. But instead of doing that, he doubled down, tripled down, tripled down. <laughs> to pull down, sex to pull down mm-hmm. by tweeting multiple times that earlier forecasts had right. predicted that Alabama was going to be was going to be impacted. But if you take a look at those maps that he tweeted out, and you know how to read those maps well, the probability of Alabama being impacted by any effects of the storm had always been Around ten percent. Mm-hmm. It was always a very low probability. So his tweet was not one hundred percent wrong. Right. It was ninety percent wrong, I would say. <laughs> but it was it was one hundred percent wrong that morning because the the, ah. the latest forecast before he sent his tweet, right? The, the latest forecast was made by, by was published by the NHC around five a.m. and Trump sent his first tweet at nine a.m. Four mm-hmm. hours later. So he was one hundred percent wrong. If the tweet had been sent one day before, then the tweet had would have been around eighty or ninety percent wrong. But on September the first, when he sent the tweet, he was wrong already. Uh, he <laughs> should have issued the correction. So one of the things that he did afterwards, if you remember, is that he he did a, a, a an event in the uh, like a brief, a public brief in mm-hmm. the Oval Office, in which he showed. An earlier cone of uncertainty, very Mm -hmm. conveniently. I think that it was the forecast for August the 30th, so a very Mm -hmm. early forecast. And the cone at that point was touching South, uh, sorry, Georgia and Florida. And he extended the cone manually, drawing on top of the cone with a Sharpie. That's that's dangerous. It's funny, first of all, we all laugh about it, but it's a serious issue because he was manipulating an unofficial forecast, and by doing that, I think that the dangerous part of this story is that he is undermining the credibility of agencies Mm. that lives depend on. That's the key of this story, I think, and the most dangerous part. So it goes way beyond the map.
0: This is so fascinating because I love what you just said that. Originally, what he had tweeted was this percent wrong, but based on simply when his wrongness changed.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, things are never right or wrong. They are just you fluid. Know. Yeah. It, yeah it's,
0: I think Mark Manson said in his first book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Beep, um, <laughs> that we are all wrong and it's only about trying to be less wrong over time. And even that's fluid. And, you know, this is really fascinating because, you know, these are tools and you can give a child a Ginsu knife and you you might see some carnage or some consequences of that. And I think, you know, something you pointed out in the book, first of all, for anyone that is remotely not sure how what to make heads or tails of these cone of uncertainty charts that the media are using. Your book is an excellent breakdown, step by step, of exactly what that chart means. And you even go as far to show, you know, different versions of that chart. And I love your disclaimers on every chart, which says, warning, this is not totally accurate. Or Uh warning, this is better, but still not the best. (laughs) (laughs) I wish more charts came with large disclaimers like that because it was your breakdown that way and showing kind of these puffs of clouds representing the possible locations of the storm.
1: It- and the possible areas that might be affected. May, may yes. I interrupt you just yes. for one second? Go ahead. Because there is a there is a coda to Sharpiegate that I describe in an article that I'm writing right now. Mm-hmm. It may be out already uh, by the time that you publish this podcast, mm-hmm. but I'm writing an article. And the end of the story is that one of the maps that um, that Trump tweeted out uh, during those days actually has a caption uh, at the bottom yes of the map. And the caption is like, it's such a perfect (laughs) coda, such a perfect closing (laughs) to all this story, because the caption of that map is one of those spaghetti maps that shows tons of possible paths of the center of the storm. And the caption of the map says, if anything on this graphic causes confusion, ignore the entire product.
0: (laughs) I laughed when I saw that.
1: That's a great. That's a great book title. Actually, yeah. <laughs> someone recommended to me that I should use it as the title for my next book after How Chats Lie, and I'm seriously considering it because it's so perfect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If this confuses you, ignore at all costs. I. Correct. I love that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know, even how you broke down like when it got to the end of the day you're you're seeing the potential range of possibilities with this cone even then you're saying most people don't know that it's not like 95% a probability that this is the area, it's at best 67%. So there's an additional, you yeah. know, <laughs> 33%. The center,
1: the, yeah, the center of the storm. It, the, I mean, it, as you said, I, I described this in a lot of detail in the book. Um, it's a 67%, 70% confidence level yeah. that the center of the storm will be inside of the cone. Right. Therefore, that means that it, there is a one out of three probability that the center <laughs> of the storm could be outside <laughs> of the cone. But then on top of that, you need to remember that The cone only shows the position of the center of Mm -hmm. the storm and hurricanes are enormous. Therefore, if you want to make an assessment as to whether you may be in danger, you need to mentally overlay the size of the storm over the cone
0: and then prepare
1: accordingly. Mm -hmm.
0: It came so clear, and that's why I think this is – it's so amazing that your book is coming out at this time because of this example. Um, Your closing thought on the cone of uncertainty was that the issue isn't inherently misleading, is that it's not a chart meant for public consumption, and yes, yet it's being – You know, thrown out everywhere. So for me, the question becomes, where does the responsibility lay for breaking a cycle of misinterpretation? Is it the authors of the chart, the journalists, the audience? You know, where do you see that?
1: It's it's everybody. Everybody. It's everybody. So and I I believe that I mentioned this in the in the book itself. And I certainly mentioned it in recent public talks that I'm doing around the book, in which I show a diagram. This diagram of communication that I tried to explain before in one of the answers to your question is that we have the designer, we have the readers, and then in between we may have the mediators, right? Mm -hmm. The mediators who should be in charge of explaining to the public what it is that they are seeing. And the mediators are basically people like me, journalists, right? Journalists Mm -hmm. and graphic designers who take the products from official sources such as the National Hurricane Center and many others. And we tell the public, you know, this graphic that you see over here may not be showing what you think that it is showing. Mm -hmm. Let me explain to you how to read it correctly and what kinds of inferences you should make Mm -hmm. out of it. Right? So it's like a a triangle, right? The diagram is actually not a bidirectional diagram path is, a, is sort of like a multi-path, like a triangle shape or something like that. So there is responsibility on the part of the scientists. That is true. And I mentioned this in the book. I think that, for example, and this is just a conjecture, that some of the products that the that NOAA and the National Weather Service, the National Hurricane Center are putting out could perhaps used some use some changes, some tweaks here and there in terms of color palettes, to gain clarity, right? I do believe that there are some design changes that could changes that could be made. But these scientists are already doing it. They are already mm-hmm. aware of how the public misinterpret these things, and they are working hard in making those products um, easier to understand. Mm. There is also there is also responsibility on the part of the public, and this is something that right. I emphasize. This the whole reason I wrote the book. Yes. It's like. Don't assume, again, that you can interpret a chart just by taking a quick look at it. If you want to discuss that chart, you have the responsibility of reading it carefully and paying right. attention to it. That's your responsibility as a reader. And I emphasize this because in recent discussions about technology and data management from by tech companies and so on and so forth, and you know, the media is misleading us and fake news, et cetera, the responsibility is usually put on the emitter, on the on the communicator, forgetting that we people, human beings, you know, we have free will, right? We Mm -hmm. have, and and we are responsible also to create, you know, a a good informational environment. We we have the responsibility to be a a little bit more attentive towards what we see. That's our responsibility. And we have the responsibility to educate ourselves a little bit more in order to participate in conversations in in the political sphere. And then Mm -hmm. finally then finally the responsibility of the mediator one of the uh, one of the main reasons why the public cannot understand these maps is that what many journalists do is to take the cone of uncertainty they repurpose it they make it look more beautiful they mm-hmm. make it colorful right. and 3D etc etc and they just throw it up and sometimes they explain it wrong you can see right. this all the time in newscasts and in TV media, etc., that the Cone and other products created by the NHC, they are not correctly explained by news media. So journalists should also make an effort in explaining things a little bit more clearly, I think.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think to that point, the question is, do they want to? be more clear. No, I, I, I
1: think that <laughs> I don't know whether they want to, but I right. certainly believe that it should do that. Responsible right.
0: journalism would do that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I hear you. And, you know, it's it's also understanding how many filters this information is coming down to us by the time we even see it and our attachment to a certain truth that we are biased towards. You know, what I think, you know, President Trump exemplified was a deep attachment To that truth that he had communicated for whatever reason. And for me, my goal as a data communicator and consumer is to detach more and more from any truth that I think I know and be open to all of those possibilities. And you're right, getting empowered with tools to take deeper examination of the charts and graphs that we're seeing and maybe even block out the first interpretation that we're receiving coupled with that chart. You know, like I almost want to cover any headline I see mm-hmm. around data and a chart and just see the chart for what it is and see mm-hmm. what kind of conclusion I come to on my own.
1: Mm-hmm. Correct. I mean, that, that I think that that's the oh, sorry. I mean, did yeah. I interrupt you again? No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, OK. Um. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Well, first of all, um, in terms of why we believe what we what we believe. So it is not enough to have an opinion about anything. You can you cannot just say I see this chart and I believe these, and I believe it because I want to believe it. It's right. Like any belief, <laughs> any belief should be supported by a reason for that belief, yes. right? But, but and that reason needs to be. Uh, you need to be able to explain those reasons to hold that belief to other people. So mm-hmm. other people can understand why you have that belief, right? You need to be able to reason the process that led you to having to having that belief, right? That's the first thing. Yes. You cannot just say, you know, I think that this is true and that's it. I think that it is true because I believe that it is true. <laughs> right. it's, that's a circular argument. No, as right? I said
0: so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly,
1: because I say so, right? Which is basically the essence of Sharpie Gate, right? You need to have a a reason or good reasons actually that can be accepted or understood by by other uh, by other people so that that that's core that's a core part of that so that's what, that's what i wanted to say about that
0: no i i 100% agree and you know one of the questions we got on twitter this morning for you i think speaks to the heart of this someone asked do you think the us educational system is doing enough to teach young ones visualization literacy and then a second question i felt tied right in, for that matter, students of business management or journalism or whomever is responsible for communicating data. You know, does it start there? Do you envision a world where in addition to trigonometry and microbiology, we're getting data visualization <laughs> literacy classes?
1: Sure. Why not? Although although teaching visualization literacy alone will lead us nowhere. Right? It's like <laughs> okay. it, it's part of a. It's, it should be part, I believe, of a wider, you know, educational overhaul in which, you know, we could include anything that is related to um, obviously critical thinking and reasoning and an argument and rhetoric, mm-hmm. but also ethics. I think that ethics should be formally taught. It's like, how can you think ethically about your own beliefs and about your own attitudes? Um, and visualization can certainly be part of that, of that program. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Because even in places where this kind of uh, a, a reasoning um, is being taught um usually graphics are not taken seriously again it's all no. about you know how to read an argument for example and understand that argument correctly and 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 charts are not treated as arguments they are treated as visuals right something that is secondary and again intuitive and easy to read. And no, again, we need to assume that charts are also arguments mm-hmm. and we can decode them and that we we can criticize them and we can be skeptical about them. Right. We can reason about them and with them. And these skills can be taught. Now, how to make this change? I have no idea. <laughs> public, I mean, uh, because I'm, I, I am, a, you know, I am a, a university professor. I don't mm. work in, in, in public schools, in elementary, middle and high schools. And what I do know, though, is that um, public school teachers are already underpaid and overworked. So they should not be burdened with the responsibility of, mm. you know, getting more work. I think that this should be a concerted effort. From you know the, the government and you know the public sphere, professionals who work in all the areas that are related to thinking about numbers, thinking about evidence, thinking about science, to help public school teachers to develop these programs, right? We need to help a little bit with that, and that's another reason why I wrote this book. Yeah. Uh, there is a there is a reason why, for example, someone called me out the other day, by the way, in one of the earlier reviews, um, someone was saying, well, you know, I really like this book; it's a lot of fun, but some of the examples. Seem a little bit off place or something for example there is a there is an example about heavy metal, mm-hmm. and i didn 't understand why, the, why why the author is talking about heavy metal at all in relationship to this map. It went on for a little bit too long well there's a whole reason why mm-hmm. I have an example about uh, a map showing the concentration or the density of heavy metal bands all over Europe. Mm-hmm. I wrote it because that 's an example that can be repurposed by school teachers to teach mm. their students how to reason about maps. Instead of showing a map of heavy metal bands, show a map of hip hop bands, right? <laughs> right. And, and students will relate to that example, right? If you if you use examples with high schoolers, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, related to topics such as life expectancy or poverty or right. whatever, those are very important issues. Economic right? very important. Uh,
0: indicators. <laughs> Economic indicators.
1: But they don't relate to their lives. Yes, But if you so true. somehow... How to reason about data based on things that they can really relate to TV shows, music, etc., and so on and so forth. They will um, they will grasp the concepts um, more easily. So I see the book also as a template, perhaps mm. that school teachers can borrow from. And, and, and steal my examples shamelessly. They should be, <laughs> yes. feel free to do that. If you're a high school you heard teacher, it here. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here. Feel free to just steal my examples and use them in class. I <laughs> repurpose them completely, right? It's like right. a template to that, uh, right? That's the reason why I included these sort of like quirky, funny, mm-hmm. slightly off examples that cannot be taken seriously by a statistician, for example, or by a, by a data scientist, right? But they will be taken seriously by a high school student.
0: I absolutely agree with you. And even for my listeners who sometimes don't know how to make their data relatable, and I encourage them to use analogies that they feel would their audience would be able to relate to, you know, some of the most incredible tableau visualizations, the I think the themes center around sports and movies and the sports ones I appreciate from a professional standpoint, because They are spectacularly done, and I couldn't care less, I can't relate to it at all, but when it comes to viz on movies or TV shows, I really get it right away. And it speaks to me. I understand it so much mm-hmm. more easily. Because it, re-
1: it relates to you. It matters exactly. to you. So once you can make, I, I described this phenomenon a little bit more in the previous book, in The Truthful Art, which is, again, more for designers. I call this the me factor, mm-hmm. right? the me factor. Once you introduce in a visualization something that emotionally connects to the lives of the readers are reading your graphic, mm-hmm. your graphic will become more effective just because the people will see themselves in the graphic, right? Oh,
0: so I that, love that.
1: Yeah. That's, let them that's see how themselves. Expect, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let people see themselves in the data. The example that I use sometimes in classes is that if you're going to show people, let's say, um, income distribution or wealth distribution in the United States, that's a curve that is very skewed, right? Mm-hmm. Tons of people on the lower end and much fewer people on a very long tail going all the way to billions of dollars, right? If mm-hmm. you show me that histogram of wealth distribution in the States, that's interesting per se, right? right. But if, before you show me that chart, you ask me, what is your wealth, right? Or how much money do you have in the bank or something? And mm. you, you asked me to input that amount of money. Then you can introduce a line in the histogram showing you are here. Mm. You make more money than 70% of people. You yes. make less money than 30% of people. That's the me factor. You're conveying the exact same information as you did before, the same right. amount of data, but you're putting the reader at the center of the visualization, and that will make the visualization more engaging. So this is what I try to do with these funny examples also (laughs) in in our charts lies. Like try to come, if you want to teach these principles, and I hope that the book will be useful for educators to teach these principles, how to become better readers of charts, try to come up with examples that connect directly to the interests of your audience rather Mm. than showing generic examples about unemployment rates or life expectancies, which again, they are very important issues but they may not connect with, directly with the interests of your audience.
0: That is fantastic. That's a just a really excellent point. And gosh, I feel like we could talk. <laughs> I, I, I want to shift gears, but I feel like that's a whole exploration on its own, I, I the relatability. Time, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so when you're thinking about the kinds of charts that you should be wary of as a consumer, what mm-hmm. are uh, the cone of uncertainty? Is certainly one that you call out. Are there other charts being used in oh, yeah. the public that you would advise people to have, like, really take some caution around interpreting?
1: Well, uh, the short answer is all of them. <laughs> but, uh, be careful with all charts, yeah. right? Because any chart can can mislead you if you don't pay attention to it. Um, however, there are specific charts that are more prone to misinterpretations, uh, and in general, there is a rela- there is an association between the complexity of a chart and the ambiguity of that chart, right? Mm-hmm. So, bar charts, for example, they are usually easier to interpret right. than scatter plots, for example, just because they tend to be just univariate, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or two-variate at the most. But, you know, a scatter plot, Particularly if you change the size of the bubbles in the chart or you right. change the color of the bubbles for a according to a categorical variable, they can encode four variables or nice. even more sometimes, right? So the more multivariate a chart is, the more open it may be to ambiguity or to misinterpretations. Mm-hmm. I have plenty of examples of scatter plots in the book that I believe that are that may be prone to be misinterpreted, for mm-hmm. example. Um, again, the old mantra, correlation is a causation, although we need to go way beyond that. Mm -hmm. I I think that many people have already internalized that, uh, that mantra, although we don't apply it, Um, we have internalized it. And we need to go a little bit beyond that. And I do that in the book and talk about, for example, the ecological fallacy. Yes. um, Amalgamation paradoxes such as Simpson's paradox Mm -hmm. and many other issues that I think that should become part of general knowledge. It's Mm -hmm. not just for a specialist, not just for data scientists. Again, ecological fallacy. If you take a look at data that is aggregated, say, at the national level, Mm -hmm. um, you should not infer you know, you should not extract inferences at the individual level, right? And the example right. that I put is a chart showing cigarette consumption per capita. It's a scatter plot, cigarette mm-hmm. consumption per capita per country on the X axis, life expectancy on the Y axis, mm-hmm. and you will see if you plot countries, you will see that there's a positive association. Right. The more cigarettes a country consumes per person, the higher the life expectancy right. of those countries <laughs> are. And I can assure you, and I can I can tell you this because I have made this mistake myself, mm. right? Actually, I would say that I have made all the mistakes that I call out in the book. But this specific one is something that really pains me to have made this mistake, mm. is to describe that chart as saying, the more we smoke, the longer we live. When right. the chart is actually not showing that. The chart is showing that there is a positive association between cigarette consumption and life expectancy right. and vice versa. And that association that is positive at the national level may completely reverse, and it does reverse at the individual level. Mm. That's an example of Simpson's paradox, or also called an amalgamation paradox, an aggregation paradox. Mm. Why does it uh, reverse? Well, because there are many other variables that you're not contemplating that explain the increase in cigarette consumption and the increase in life expectancy. For example, wealth. The wealthier a country is, the better the healthcare of the country will be, probably, on average. And the safer that country is. And all that increases life expectancy. Obviously, m- people will also have more money to buy more cigarettes. Right. And they will buy more cigarettes. They will smoke more. But the life expectancy that they are losing because cigarette consumption is more prevalent gets balanced out, it gets offset by the fact that they get longer lives because they have better health care and, and nu- better diet. And nutrition, diet, right? Yeah. And nutrition. Right? There are many other factors that we are not contemplating. Mm-hmm. So amalgamation paradoxes, Simpsons paradox, the ecological fallacy. These are all things that I think that we could explain to anybody. Anybody can grasp why this happens, if you use the right examples. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple of couple of examples in the book. Also time series charts, right? Mm -hmm. When you show the co-occurrence of two different phenomena, and you try to imply the coincidence in time between two different phenomena. And you try to imply that there's a causal connection between the two. Right. There are also examples of that in the book. That is also very, very, it's very easy to jump to that conclusion uh, intuitively, particularly if you already want to believe <laughs> that there is a causal, causal connection between those phenomena in the, that you show in your time series chart.
0: That was an incredible explanation. And I loved that you cited Tyler Vigen of spurious correlations in your book, Mm -hmm. because I use him as an example to show what the potential pitfalls are of dual axis charts when they're on different scales, which that is an extremely commonly used chart in my field. I used to use them constantly. And, you know, his is a hilarious depiction of where that can be so misleading, because even where you place your axis is can be a subjective choice. So, you know, I think that that those examples are really crucial to help people really understand what's at play. And I loved one of your quotes, which was, don't read too much into a chart, particularly if you're reading what you like to read.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's again, that's confirmation bias, right? That's the uh, actually, the confirmation bias is connected to another psychological phenomenon called motivated reasoning. Oh, we okay. like to reason ourselves into what we already believe. We all like to strengthen mm-hmm. our own beliefs. We are all we all do that. You should not. We should not believe that we are smarter than the other guy. Right. Next, <laughs> door. we all do that. However, I am also an optimist. I do believe that we can become more mindful mm-hmm. of how prone we all are. To projecting what we want to believe onto whatever we see and then we can try to curb our own impulses a little bit. We cannot be 100% successful, we are not robots, we are not computers, we are human beings, but at least we can reduce the amount of times that these may happen.
0: Yes, and what did you call it again? Motivation,
1: motivated, motivated what? reasoning, reasoning. Yeah. Oh, that's
0: motivated something I have to
1: look yeah. up. Yeah. There is. A, I, I recommend several books at the end of How Chats Lie, because mm-hmm. How Chats Lie is just the entry point to all these issues, right? It's like provides a very wide introduction to all these issues. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of How Chats Lie, I provide a, a reading list. A, sorry, a reading list mm-hmm. uh, of books that that help me understand all these all these matters. Oh, great. So it's like they're follow up readings, and my favorite. One that deals with all these biases and cognitive problems, etc., is by a psychologist called Carol Tavris, with mm-hmm. a V, Tavris, mm-hmm. and her book is titled. It's a slightly old book, right? But it's a, it's a very good one. It's titled "Mistakes Were Made, but Not by Me." <laughs>
0: okay, <laughs> that's very clever.
1: Everybody makes mistakes except me, right? Right, mistakes right. Were made, <laughs> but not by me. There is also the classic "Thinking Fast and Slow." Mm. Uh, by Danny Kahneman, but um, but Thinking Fast and Slow is a little bit drier. Mm. Uh, Carol's book is funny; oh, it's okay. a lot of fun to read, a right. lot of fun to read, and extremely informative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Oh, I, I love that. Thanks for those recommendations, and i'll I'll definitely look for that. And I think that as long as we're going through this process, continually asking, "What am I missing?" So I I have a four step methodology that I teach for having people create data stories, and the C part of the methodology is context and it's continually asking what could I be missing here? What is something that, am I painting as complete a picture as I possibly can? And that's what I loved about your book, especially with the cigarette consumption scenario was you just kept probing deeper and then segmenting, uh, using kind of, um, not sparklines, but, uh, Um, Of course, I'm forgetting the small multiples division Mm -hmm. um, of those scatter plots. And of course, the story really starts coming alive when you start to segment. And I think that it's just a fantastic read for that process. And, um, you know, before I dive into the last question, I want to know what gets you excited about the future of data visualization?
1: (sighs) T- tons of different things. <laughs> um, um, well, first of all, I mean, um, let's say on the higher end of the of the spectrum of complexity and you know expertise, etc. The new the new technologies that are being developed, right? It's like. experiments that I'm seeing with, for example, augmented reality and virtual Mm. reality to create virtual spaces um, through which people can explore information and integrate themselves um, with the information that they are exploring. Mm. I am a little bit skeptical about how useful a virtual reality will be for data visualization per se, Mm. but I am super excited about how powerful it can be for pictorial visualization. Mm. Uh, For example, I have seen simulations of, for example, three um, D, a high resolution three D models of a human heart, mm-hmm. of a real person that you can map in three D wow. space, and you you use your three D virtual reality glasses to get inside that person's heart mm-hmm. and explore it and see whether there is any obstruction obstru- in, in obstruction in a in a vein or an artery or whatever. Right, I see a lot of possibilities in these kinds of technologies, um, innovations in data visualization per se. Right, new charts being created, so expanding the language of data visualization mm-hmm. by creating new types of graphs, of maps, new ways of conveying information. That's at the higher end of sophisticated sure. expertise, etc. But I'm much more excited about the other end, which is that which is what I try to do with How Chart Slide, which is to basically bring everybody else up to speed with how exciting all these technologies are, right? Mm-hmm. They just basically promote the idea that anybody, everybody can benefit from learning um, a little bit of data visualization. And today, all the tools are, I mean, most tools are available out there. Many mm-hmm. of them are free. Yep. Many of them are open source. So it's just a matter of, you know, reading a couple of um, intros to the field, a couple of books that introduce you to the field or mm-hmm. blog posts or whatever that talk about, you know, certain principles that you should, you should apply. And then start experimenting. There are plenty of free tools out there that people can experiment with, right? One of them that I use constantly in classes um is a tool that was developed by the Department of Statistics at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, which is the Department of Statistics that created the R programming mm. language. Mm-hmm. Well, besides R, people in that department also designed a beautiful open source, super easy to use tool for data analysis and data visualization called InSight with a Z, InSight.
0: InSight, Um, oh, okay.
1: Um, um, It's a wonderful little tool. It's basically a a shiny application. Those of you who use Mm -hmm. R know what I'm talking about. But it's a graphical user interface to R. What it does in the background is to create R code, but you don't see the code. All that you see is a drag and drop. (sighs) Point and click. Super easy to upload a data set and start exploring it visually. And why they designed it? They designed it because they wanted to create a tool that was useful to teach statistics to high school students.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: that is simple to use, that is easy to use, and that makes the statistics visual. Because right. once you start making numbers visual and physical, numbers become more understandable and they also become more approachable. So these mm. are the things that get me excited. Uh, bringing everybody else up to speed with all these technologies, what the, with the wonders that all these technologies can open our eyes to.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. You know, I love the excitement around a deeper fluency of visualization. And, and I definitely can't wait to check out that tool and play around because I could definitely stand to play with more <laughs> open source The wonderful sets. thing
1: is that yeah, insight, another wonderful thing about it, besides being an op- free and open source is that um, it has two versions. One of them you can download and install in your computer if you want to have it installed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other one, which is the one that I use, you don't need to install anything. It works on your browser. It's
0: web-based. That's great.
1: But And it's local. That means that the data that you put in there is not sent to any, uh, to okay. any other server. Mm-hmm. It stays in your browser. It stays in your computer, oh. but it works on the browser. It's browser browser-based.
0: Based. Oh, yeah. it's excellent. Like,
1: yeah. Super. I mean, it has its limitations, obviously. You should Mm -hmm. not try to upload one terabyte of data to it because it will crash.
0: (laughs) But for the smaller
1: data sets, right, which is what we usually use to teach you know, beginners in beginning classes, like, you know, 2000 rows of data or something like that. It works beautifully. Wow.
0: That's fantastic. And I'll make sure a link to these tools and all of the books that you've mentioned are going to be on the show notes page. And I also I'm also excited in some ways around augmented reality. I remember testing out you uh, were tri- TripAdvisor or Yelp it might have been Yelp and I was walking on the street and I said you know I, I really need to eat something right now but I don't know how good any of these places are and I saw mm-hmm. like an AR button of some kind and I tapped it and as I moved and panned my phone around it overlaid reviews for those restaurants and data oh
1: that's so cool around yeah, those restaurants
0: and I was like this is amazing <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yeah well that's a wonder of technology right
0: yeah. yeah. So we've come to our final question. So think very hard here. Imagine this very plausible scenario. (laughs) You are playing uh, Settlers of Catan and looking to unify two settlements when suddenly it pulls you in through a vortex back to the moment you are about to present the first piece of data or first insight you're ever going to present. What would today you say to yesterday, you?
1: About settlers of Catan?
0: <laughs> no, about presenting data.
1: <laughs> Related to settlers of Catan?
0: I mean, it could be if that's what you were going to present.
1: <laughs> if I needed to go back in time and explain to myself what, I mean, or tell myself any advice mm-hmm. about presenting data, like yes. my, to my previous, myself, to my previous eye 20 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I guess that it would be the fact what i explained before right that a visualization or a chart is not just a picture it's not just a um it's not just an illustration right it's a it's a depiction of evidence it's a way for people to understand information better including yourself including including the creator of the of the chart um that would be, I think that the the best advice that I could give myself 20 years ago, because again, I was, I was trained as a journalist Mm -hmm. and as a graphic designer, not as a statistician or as a data or as a data scientist. And I had, I had to learn, you know, all the other skills that are needed to design visualizations the hard way, Mm -hmm. but making, by making mistakes, by being called out about these mistakes and correcting myself and trying to, trying to do better. And I also will tell myself play more board games. I <laughs> of Catan. Um, play more board games, particularly strategic board games. Mm-hmm. I love strategic board games. And not only Settlers of Catan, but also, um, I don't know, a more advanced a strategic historical simulations. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful game by GMT, a company called a Here I Stand, which mm-hmm. is a historical simulation of the religious wars Mm. after after Luther and Protestantism. Each player runs a country and you need to run the economy and the politics and the religious issues and stuff. It's a lot of fun. But what what those games teach you to do, I think, is not that they are they are fun. They are fun. But they force you to think critically, Mm. strategically in an organized manner, taking into account tons of data that you need to analyze in your head in order to forecast what may happen in the future and then prepare for different scenarios, plan A, plan B, plan C. So they are great educational tools, I think. And some of them may be used to teach things such as probability, for example. Right? It's like Settlers of Catan which is based on um, a dice rolling in, in several actions that you need to take during the game, you can sort of try to calculate what the odds are that you will get the right result in the dice or not. Mm-hmm. And you can you can you can compute those. Right. And, and I think that it's great to teach children probability mm. theory and statistics, et cetera, through these kinds of devices, through games. right.
0: So that is, will be another
1: advice. That you give me. This yeah, is fantastic.
0: I mean, I've recently gotten my son, my seven-year-old son, hooked on Chinese checkers, and these games are an edge for me because I tend—I I grew up on very linear thinking games, like adventure computer games that had one path and one ending. So, for me, the idea that there isn't necessarily a specific destination, and you are in, thinking non-linearly. That is an amazing growth mechanism, I think, because as children, we're taught there's one there's one answer to everything. And Uh so it's
1: it's the black and white, the black and white problem that we talked before, right? The binary thinking. Mm, binary thinking, either or binary thinking. And these kinds of games, as you say, there's actually a term in the board game world that we use to refer to these games that may provide tons of different paths winning or losing. We call them sandbox games. Sandboxes. It's a sandbox. You can basically create whatever you want with the game. Hmm. There's another old classic called uh, Civilization, Civilization
0: yes. Yep. Um,
1: which, which is not related to the computer game, by the way. It's a completely separate game. It's uh, by a company game. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's by a company called Avalon Hill Mm -hmm. from many years ago, but it can still be bought. Second hand copies are available Mm -hmm. on Amazon and it's a a pure sandbox game. Each person begins with a civilization and it is your responsibility to grow that civilization, to acquire new technologies, to improve the well-being of your citizens, Mm -hmm. um, to defend yourself if you're attacked Mm -hmm. or to go to war if you need resources. Although war is not recommended by the game, you can win the game. And more often than not, you will win the game if you don't enter any war. Um, which is also a great message, right? So <laughs> right? Don't, don't go to war. War are very costly. They are very expensive. So The, to exactly. the path
0: to victory is peace. Exactly. The path to
1: victory is peace and enlightenment. Just build more and acquire more technologies. Yeah, it's a great game.
0: This is fantastic, especially parenting advice. You're welcome, everyone listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is really just so amazing. I, I'm definitely going to go back and start to think about like engaging with some of these games to think differently. So my question is, does Fortnite count as, <laughs> as some of that nonlinear? or is it just, is the message of strategy missed?
1: I have, I mean, I, I have not played Fortnite seriously, my, my older son, uh, so I'm not, I cannot speak about it. What I would say though is that I have played both um, board games and the computer versions of some of these board games. Mm-hmm. Um, And the experience is not the same. Right. Um, This social element of board games is what makes these games interesting, Mm. because then you will not just deal with the uncertainty that can be computed, which is basically what you may get in a dice roll. That's Mm -hmm. what what you can compute. And that's what a computer may provide. The experience that a computer may provide is basically you, you fight against or you play against the artificial intelligence of your computer, which is basically mm-hmm. just computation. It's pure mathematics. But when you work and play with other people, you also have to deal with more ambiguous uncertainty, with mm-hmm. the uncertainty that cannot be computed right and you need to learn how to deal with that and weighing into your forecast and into your predictions that non computable non you know not math- non mathematical level of uncertainty is also extremely relevant to make decisions mm-hmm. in real life and it, again it's not mathematical but you need to take it into account so there's a difference in the experience i would recommend people to play for perhaps fewer video games yeah and or or play more video games that have this social component right, right? like collaborative video games or whatever. But I still tend to believe that the physicality also of the board game creates a completely different experience around the game itself through the participation of of, of all the all friends, right? Around a table.
0: Of course. And and there's also an energy of the brain waves being exchanged as you're in people's presence. I mean that's a measurable effect in some cases. And that that variable of you know, you don't know what this person is going to do, <laughs> is a huge factor. Well, Alberto, I have to say this one is one of the richest and most comprehensive conversations I've had around data viz and ethics and certainty and uncertainty. But unfortunately, our time has run out. So tell the listeners where they can keep up with you.
1: Sure. Um, well, first, it's very easy to find me online through a simple Google search because um, my last name is uh, is quite unique. <laughs> um, so it's Alberto Cairo, Alberto with a an O, and then Cairo is like the city in Egypt, although I'm not from Egypt, I'm from Spain. <laughs> um, my website is uh, albertocairo.com. That's my professional website. I also have a personal blog that I try to update as much as possible. The web blog is thefunctionalart.com. The Functional Art is my first book, actually, Mm -hmm. in the American market, published in 2012. And the blog is still thefunctionalart.com. And then on Twitter, I am on Twitter, at Alberto Cairo. I'm also on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm active everywhere. So it's very, very easy to find me.
0: And I really appreciate that you are so interactive and responsive on social media. You're not in some ivory tower (laughs) watching the conversation from afar. And I I appreciate that so much.
1: I appreciate that. I appreciate that you say that. I'm really thankful for that. I try to be just because I am a great believer in the fact that knowledge doesn't Reside on individual brains. It mm-hmm. resides on networks. And again, you're not smarter than the other guy or that the other girl or that the other person or the other woman or the other man or, mm-hmm. the, or whoever that other person is. It's in the interaction between mm-hmm. like-minded people who have honest conversations and informed conversations about these uh, challenges and charts and graphs and data and whatever that understanding may happen. So that's the reason why I try to reply to people who write to me.
0: Nicely, mm. I mean,
1: if you're nasty to me. I will probably not reply. But if you know, if you try to engage in a n- nice conversation about a particular thing. I, I will probably reply uh, as soon as I can. Yeah. So and I by wish that more people who do that. Yeah.
0: So by interacting with the individual, you're actually helping to uplevel the collective hive consciousness, yep. in yep. a way. And
1: you know, to be or being open to being wrong about something. Right. And, you know, oh. like, to correct yourself sometimes yeah that that that's also part of the conversation yes
0: that's a true growth area to own responsibility for a mistake, as you said. I love that. So Alberto's book is available for pre-order now and it goes officially on sale October 15th. And the link to that will be on the show notes page, as well as all of the websites, all the places to contact him, all of the resources. And I have to tell you, I truly love this book. I was up late nights reading it (laughs) and it will be an invaluable resource in your library. So I just want to thank you so much for taking this time to be on the show and speak to my listeners. It's really an honor. And I hope our paths cross again.
1: It was really my honor. I I really appreciate these conversations. I enjoy them very much. Um, As I said before, I'm a great believer in networks, conversations, chatting with people and meeting other people. And yeah, I'm I'm glad that you like the book also.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you again and take care. Thank you. Lee Electoral College. That was amazing. And I have to say, after reading Alberto's book, I envision anyone who creates, communicates, or consumes data, that this will be a vital primer for them to having educated conversations with yourself and others about the world of numbers that we live in. So, to catch all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the show notes page at leahpica.com zero forty nine. 049. I would love if you could leave me a comment or a suggestion or even a question for Alberto because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting information. If you like what you've heard, please hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating, and review because not only are they quite appreciated but they will help this valuable information get into the hands of other practitioners, just like you. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration by none other than Mr. Alberto Cairo. And you've already heard this today, but I feel these quotes bear repeating. And that is, don't read too much into a chart, particularly if you're reading what you like to read. A chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. My take? We must begin to detach from the dogma of trying to prove who is right and who is wrong with data because those two extremes simply do not exist. Use a discerning, well-trained eye when creating and consuming charts. One that not only looks at what is present, but what looks for what is not. And ask yourself, what are my own experiences, preferences, beliefs, and biases, how are they influencing the conclusions I'm making right now? Only then do I feel that we can gain the confidence to answer our original question by saying, this is our best guess of how not wrong we are. That's it for today. Again, hop on over to leahpika.com slash bootcamp to get all signed up for the training you wish you had when you started crunching data and you won't find anywhere else. Stay warm, namaste, and namago. And that's a wrap. Pretty video... Perfect. Oh, wow. (laughs) Exhilarating. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure...